Hey, my name is Michaela Demers, and you're listening to Art, Activism, and Adventure. Today I'm sitting in the Green Beanery with Blake Martin. Blake is an ex-dancer. I called you an ex-dancer. I hope that's okay. It's, it's okay. I'm good. <laughs> I, I still dance, kind of. Yeah. In my way. I hope so. Okay. Okay, but for this intro, you're yeah, going to be sure, an ex-dancer. Yeah, sure, I'm an ex-dancer. Okay. <laughs> a professor at York University, a traditional... A teacher of traditional Thai massage, a long-distance runner, and a martial artist. He holds a PhD in kinesiology, a graduate diploma in neuroscience, a BFA and MA in dance, and a bachelor of education. It's a mouthful. Blake's too, pres- too many. Too many, but you want more. Yes, I do. <laughs> Blake's presented internationally on arts and the brain and creativity in the brain, and that's pretty much what we're here to talk about. Sure. I have no idea what your presentations were about, but I'm uh, sure... Yeah, me neither. <laughs> Okay, cool. So, but before we talk about anything else, we need to talk about bread. Okay. Because I'm also a bread maker. Yeah, you can do that. You can buy a bread maker, but that's no, wrong. no, no. I am a bread maker. Oh, oh. oh I thought you said you almost bought no, one. No, I am a bread maker. Oh, I do not you. own. A okay, bread maker. okay, you are one. Yes. Yes. And I wanted to ask you just about what kind of bread you make. So, um, since uh, I finished my PhD, I've been working on um, seriously slow rise bread hybrid. Uh, raised uh, and pure Levain breads. Um, most recently, I've been working on wild caught yeasts. Wow! So this I'm, is hard I'm for. yeah. So I'm cultivating uh, yeasts in different places. I'm trying to catch them and uh, use them. So and then taking particular flour blends. So there's a, a rye mill uh, uh, that's out near my sister's place near uh, Brantford, Ontario. And uh, I got some rye from there and made uh, a rye levain, a rye, rye starter. Um, but I caught the yeast out at her house. Yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to, you How know... How do you catch yeast? Well, it's, uh, you set a yeast trap. So the, <laughs> the bottom line is um, get, get uh, wet flour mm-hmm. uh, at certain percentages. And uh, so you expose it to the air for a certain period of time and then you cover it loosely and um, something will start to grow and you remove most of what was there and you put in new flour and new water and expose it to the air again. So then you get several iterations of uh, exposing the, um, the flour and water to the air and the dominant yeast culture in whatever that environment is, um, that, that will uh, start, that will take And after about four days, um, you have a starter that's typically strong enough to raise a loaf of bread. And so, uh, yeah, so it's just a matter of... I do that, but I I wouldn't describe it that beautifully. And also, the starters that I've made, like, in my downtown apartments are not that great. Yeah, now, there's a couple things that could be going on. It could be the quality of your... And I don't mean this to say that you're flour is bad flour. It's, it's but, pretty bad flour. But, but, but if you use um, like bleached or, mm-hmm. or bromated flours, they are they uh, don't support as lo- large bioculture. Right. And so they don't typically, um, it's not as, as, as wonderful uh, culture that comes out of it. And equally, um, uh, if you use straight up white flour, you won't get as strong a culture either. Right. Better to even if you drift towards, uh, you know, pure white flour Levain later on. If you start it with a the addition of something. yeah, some whole wheat or some spelt, the bioculture in that is more complex. So um, there's this really cool um, company 
you're going to spend a little bit more money for your, your flower, but it's called Arva Flower. And they're in uh, London, Ontario, oh, just cool. outside of London. And they do organic uh, flour, and you can buy hard flour for your... And they'll send it to you the next day. It comes the next oh, day. Cool. And you can get whole wheat from them and, and white flour. And it's, it's just kind of fun to get flour mailed to you. Yeah, it's completely <laughs> awesome. And then and then you can you can work with that. And yeah. you'll be working with like really good, healthy uh, biocultures that, that are in the bread. So, yeah, so that's... Uh, it's kind of, and uh, I make I make bread uh, every week. Uh, there's uh, I typically make four loaves and sometimes as many as eight, and uh, I deliver it to my neighbors uh, in my in my neighborhood. I'm known as the bread fairy, uh, so I I'll show up and I, I I say it myself. But now the kids when they see me at the door they'll go they go mom it's the bread fairy yeah. and I try to arrive uh, just right around dinner time. Right and. Um, so yeah, and, and I just recently started baking uh, bagels too, Montreal oh, style cool. bagels, uh, and it's again it's it's kind of the exact opposite of uh, slow rise yeast baking. What you use is a tiny amount of yeast, but it's an extremely short rise. You bench the bread for maybe 45 minutes uh, before rolling it into bagel shapes and sticking it into malted water yeah. and baking it. And right. it's super so good, like yeah. it's really good and. You know, lots of sesame seeds, more than it can than the bagel can hold, and uh, yeah, it's just, just cool. Yeah, that's the whole problem with going out for food afterwards. Is that oh. like when you make such good food at home, you don't need to go out? I, I make I make quite literally the best bread I've ever eaten in my life, and that's my goal: is that every loaf would be like the very best bread you can eat. And it's a uh, good neighborhood to live in. It is one it with is. the bread fairy. Yeah, yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yes. All right, well, I guess we should talk about the brain because yeah, that's sure. why we're here. Well, okay, so I made a bunch of questions because when we talked to you earlier, you, you just said, talk to me about the brain. Yeah. And so, but you also said that, like, you could talk about it in relation to, like, art, activism, and adventure and the yeah, people sure. that do those things. Absolutely. So I have questions that might apply to all of them awesome. or questions that might apply to one. And, uh, yeah, go to that. So, okay, but first, so I did put the, like, this, like, topic out to the very small social media universe that I participate in, and I recently got this new app called Anchor. Have you heard of it? No. So it's, like, it's almost like tweeting, but with your voice. Okay. And so it's it's on your phone, and you create an account, and you say something, and I think your initial wave can be however long you want, but then your response to waves, they call them waves, has to be like a minute or two minutes or something. And so I put a wave out about this. And so this teacher from England or something got back to me. I should know his name. He's in there. But um, we went back and forth for a bit and he, his question, he was like, I kind of already know the answer because I've done a lot of research or like looking into it. Yeah. Um, But he, his question was how about how the stomach is kind of the body's second brain. Yeah. And so, he just wanted, yeah, to well, talk about that. So if you know the answer already, why, well, don't, why, don't, the answer. why don't you tell me smart, right? smarty pants? So, well, I mean, it's complicated, right? So the, the enteric nervous system, it's this kind of like this second nervous system. It has one-tenth of the neurons that are in your brain. We have about 84 billion neurons in our, our brain. Mm-hmm. we got about one-tenth of those. In this your, whole episode is going to need like a glossary. But anyway, continue. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so a, a neuron, a neuron is uh, a, the basic cell of the nervous system. It's a cell that has excitable properties. It can 
uh, shoot a signal from one end of it to the other, and um, it actually, the cell itself, the cell all by itself has, has to kind of sum um, impulses and decide, am I going to send the signal onward or not? So right at the level of the cells, the cells themselves are already deciding, should I send the signal or should I not? And um, the uh, enteric nervous system, which is around your gut, right. it's this whole cluster of neurons, and um, it's, like I said, it's called the second brain because it's got so many in this cluster. And uh, this part of your, um, of your nervous system makes um, most of the serotonin, which is kind of like the feel-good chemical in your body, and it, it, it makes most of that in your body. Now, that's the stuff that it makes down there, that can't cross the blood-brain barrier. It can't, right. get, can't get from your gut to your brain directly. But it does impact uh, interactions, nervous interactions, cellular interactions in your body. It's a kind of chemical called a neuropeptide, and it has properties in your body that are a little different than uh, what it has in your brain. It can both be a neurotransmitter, that is, communicating between nerve cells, but it can also communicate with other cells as well. Okay. So it has a bunch of different functions. So, but it, this, I mean, I, I think it's, um, there, there's a lot to be said. Um, yeah, it, it's hard, because he he talked about it through his own experience, yeah. but then because he's an educator, he was also then relating what he was learning to, like, kids that he was seeing, and so, like, like the rates of, like, ADHD or, like, other things yeah. that are, he said was caused also by, like, um, the hormones in our food, like, those yeah. kinds of things that affect our behavior. Sure, yeah, and, and, and uh, a really th- a thing that's becoming increasingly interesting in kind of the whole neuroscience area is uh, the role of gut flora and fauna, so... Like so, in in your intestines, um, <laughs> we 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 have we have more uh, critters living in and on us than we have cells in our entire body. Right. So, but the the ones in our gut, they're really responsible for a lot of things, including um, cardiac health, the health of our heart, the, our mental health. There's uh, they have uh, these incredible roles that we're only starting to discover, and because so much nervous activity is related to uh, eating, uh, feelings of being full, uh, satiety, this idea that you feel full up or you don't feel full up, and our, the foods that we eat are related to that, and some of them are hollow foods, or they taste good, but they don't really provide any nourishment, or they taste sweet, mm-hmm. but they don't have any sugar, and they uh, trick these neurons into thinking things have happened that haven't happened. Right. And so uh, this nervous system, like any nervous system, like a single nerve cell, it has the capacity to learn mm-hmm. and to remember. Um, and I don't mean remembering like in the same way that we put together and say, oh, that was a really good sandwich I had last night. Um, I, I don't mean it like that, but they get used to a certain uh, stimulus or lack of stimulus and they become adapted to responding in a particular way to those things. So the things we eat or don't eat, uh, the additives that are are or are not in our food, um, and things like that. So those things, I mean, obviously, in terms of learning, they have, they have importance because uh, your, your brain... Uh, so I'm eating this peanut butter cookie here, and the peanut butter cookie 
if you imagine dividing it into five, uh, one-fifth of that cookie, the energy of that is going to my brain. My brain is very energy hungry. So one-fifth of everything I eat goes to my brain. Okay. Um, and so the, the appropriateness of our nutrition is important for nourishing our energy hungry brain. Right. Right. And that's, uh, that's kind of the bottom line there. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in that because I think I have some struggles. But I don't think that those are of anyone's interest. But it's interesting to learn about because, um, yeah, like sometimes, which I think, like, these, this will come up in our other questions, but when you think about, yeah, like how you feel or, like, the amount of energy you have or your progression and what you're trying to improve upon doesn't happen or does happen yeah you don't know how much something like this could be relevant in that kind of work exactly exactly and and i think in other things too because food is so central to our survival that um and we have so many drives and and, you know and part of part of this is about adventuring and part of you know this idea is about adventuring and part of our drives part of what excites us is this anticipation of reward. I mean, that's, that's huge. And it's, it's around food. Around food, it's enormous. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we have all kinds of habits and customs around food that are, that, that are built around these appetitive drives. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, so that's, you know, learning how, how, do we, how do we come to the table and how do we learn and uh, just... How do we survive? Survival, it's like survival, but food has become much more than survival. It's become status symbol yeah. and, and uh, community, um, kind of a community event. And, um, you know, and even, you know, food is a statement about what our beliefs are uh, in, in the world. Yeah. And so even those things uh, get wrapped up in, you know, what happens at the level of our gut. And so all those neurons making decisions, impacting all the neurons uh, in the big brain, um, you know, I think that's, that's all, it's all connected. Yeah. 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 And you get a lot of that. You get like food trends, like not even like ingredients that are trendy, but then diets that become like yeah. more popular and you get people's initial response. Like I work at a cafe, so, you know, you will have like gluten-free stuff or we'll have vegan stuff and people are either like immediately attracted to it or like I'm definitely not going to eat that because it doesn't have like real sugar in it or whatever so yeah it's definitely interesting to see the social norms around that as well which is what I think of more when it comes to food than like the internal benefits yes but it's important to know about too yeah so I mean just hey a gluten-free note on Mm. really well uh, fermented sourdough bread oh yeah yeah 16 parts uh, per million uh, of gluten in properly fermented sourdough, so it is technically gluten free. Oh, there you go. Yeah, just keep it away from any flour on your counter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So make it, yeah, make it flourless. Good. Okay, cool. So these questions are probably gonna be super all over the place, but that's Let's just go. the way it is. Okay, so another one that we talked about um, initially, or I think you threw out there was where do our motivations come from these Hmm. are like super broad questions that i'm like yeah hopefully the brain connects to this which i I think it does but well it does i mean and and this this i guess could be applied to the art activism and adventure in terms of like maybe it's the same answer for for everything so like why we have the motivation to create or activism in terms of like 
this idea of like helping or pr- making progressions that way or actually the, the, there's so things that we do are actually they, they happen in different parts of the brain so motivation um, for riding down a really exciting hill uh, on your mountain bike uh, an example for, for me that's really pertinent um, that what that feeling I get that kind of really keyed up feeling that I get before that and the motivation to do it it's very different than uh, and it actually happens in different parts of the brain mm-hmm. than uh, the areas that are responsible for activism right. or, or even for art and, uh, and I think it's really important while we're kind of mentioning art and things that and activism uh, that might be that people might call left brain functions I think it's really important to dispense with that idea right away. Okay. You know, um, there, there, that dichotomy between the left and the right brain that was discovered in people who they cut their uh, brains in half to stop them from having seizures. It's called a, uh, a calisectomy, or they they cut the corpus callosum in half. This this um, part in the brain that connects the two sides together. Right. And for so, people to stop having seizures? Yes. And it would work? Yeah, because a seizure is like an electrical storm in the brain. Right. And if you imagine that it starts and just got a little bit of a storm over here, and then it whips across this band of, connective, uh, of, of connection cells to the other side of the brain, it starts a storm there, and then it comes back, it feeds right. back and forth across the brain. So doing these, um, cutting the corpus callosum, uh, bisecting it, uh, it's actually called a commissurotomy because you cut the, the central commissure. But um, by cutting that in half, you stop the spread of the storm across the brain. So, But then they had people who had these effectively dissociated brain. You could present something to one eye, to their uh, right eye, and you'd ask them what they see. And we know that that goes into the left side of their brain. And they'd say things like, I, I see a face. And then you do the same thing into their left eye, which goes to the right side of the brain, and they'd say uh, a nose, an eye, right. a lip. Right. And so they'd name the features and the details of the thing they saw. And it started this whole branch of science that said, okay, what does each side of the brain do? And, and the, brains, the, the sides of the brain do have specific functions in terms of language or spatial cognition and things like that, but it doesn't mean that doesn't mean that we're left-brained or right-brained. We use both. we all have a whole brain. We, we do, <laughs> except for if you've had a commissurotomy. Right. And then um, if you've had that, then you have that very particular experience. Um, and even artists, artists, some artists take Merce Cunningham, uh, this really remarkable uh, dance choreographer. He used extremely analytical means mm-hmm. to come at his choreography. He would sit down and he would think it. He'd basically plotted out almost yeah. mathematically so his analytical process gave rise to a creative expression hmm. but by the same token so many scientists that I know have these flashes of insight where they go oh I just had this super cool idea you know while they were sitting in the bathtub or on the bus and they'll they'll have these flashes of insight and they'll or they'll try something they'll say okay I'm gonna take these two amino acids and I'm gonna see what happens I have a feeling I, I it's just a strong feeling and they don't, they're not basing it on strength, strong analysis the way they should. They just have this sense, this intuitive sense that they should do it. So this is all, all to say that the way the brain works, it works in an integrated way. Both halves work together. Right. And 
So when I say that we have different parts of the brain that work in activism or in the arts or uh, for motivating us or in adventure, I don't mean that it's specifically a left brain or right brain function, uh, although some of them kind of parcel out a little bit in those ways because of some of the features that are on different sides of the brain. Right. But um, things that we know, for example, about motivation in most things is uh, there has to be anticipation of a reward. There has to be, you have to be going, okay, so why is this good? And so there's, um, there's two big systems that are involved in that. One is the dopamine system or the dopaminergic system. And the, the second one is the serotonergic system or the serotonin, serotonin system. And so dopamine is all about anticipating stuff. So if you think, if you, if you smell food and you go, oh, ooh, that smells good. That smells good. Like barbecue from far away. Oh, yeah. And, and, you, think, <laughs> and you think that it's going to be so good to eat. So dopamine is involved in you anticipating that reward. And it, it's kind of like this reward juice. It squirts out anytime you anticipate a reward and when you get the reward. So when you first get the reward, it goes, oh, yeah, that was what I thought it was, that was good. And so it, there's uh, a couple of big areas that are responsible for it. One is sits on top of your brainstem and um, it's involved, uh, it's called the ventral tegmental area. And it's like if you, um, if you do something super exciting, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's there and it's squirting. St- so adre- adrenaline junkies, they're actually dopamine junkies. What right. they, they got this, uh, which eventually gets, gets down to uh, adrenaline, it eventually gets there. But it starts by squirting out this stuff in their brain and that, it kind of goes all over in all these different pathways. But it's this, it is going to feel so good when I go down this hill and you have it it impacts your uh, your hypothalamus which hits your pituitary gland which squirts out stuff from your kidneys the, uh, adrenaline like uh, and um, uh, cortisol and epinephrine and all these really exciting things that say it's gonna feel great makes your pupils you know uh, get ready yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they dilate, dilate. Uh, your hair will stand on end a little bit uh, your muscles will become tense your heart will beat faster your uh, respiration rate increases because it's like, oh, it's going to feel so good. And then you do the thing, you get a little bit more um, of the dopamine, but then it acts on a second system um, much further forward in your brain. And uh, this little place called the nucleus accumbens, and the nucleus accumbens then squirts out uh, serotonin. Right. And serotonin is like this... It's all, well, what, what we know about it, it's a complex action. What we know about it is when we don't have it, we feel awful. Right. Um, and uh, we are grouchy and we don't take as many risks. We don't explore and we don't play as much when we don't have it. We kind of, we actually hide. And, um, but when we do have it, we're more playful and we uh, tend to seem happier. But it's a complex action. So, so that's like, that would be very much associated with adventure-related stuff. Right. Uh, or so, even like performance in a way. Yes. Okay, but this is what I was going to say is, so I find that this like experience, just trying to like, try to find that feeling for me while you're talking about it, mm-hmm. happens also during things that like you really don't want to do. 
like things that you're like not looking forward to, not looking forward to, but then almost or like not even looking forward to, but you're not you're unsure or you're more so nervous than just like psyched. So that's that's a little bit different. That's uh, that's all part of. So some of the things that happen. Sorry, the sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system is the nervous system that if it's scared, it wants you to be scared too. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's that part of you that that if you're if you're terrified, it says you should be terrified, Mm -hmm. right? So that's how you know it's sympathetic. It wants to be terrified with you. And and um, (laughs) but but. Imagine, though, that instead of just walking down the street late at night and getting scared, you um, were with some friends and you said, we're going to go to a haunted house together. And so you had agreed. And so you knew it was coming and you were anticipating it. And you knew you were with friends and you knew you were safe. Right. So... The, d- the difference there is that you have the, you do have the dopamine and the serotonin in your brain. In the instance where you're just walking down the street and someone jumps out and scares you, um, like not kindly, um, then your body is responding appropriately to that situation in, a, in a de- an attempt to defend itself. Right. No dopamine. No. No serotonin. No. Right, it's 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 devoid of that that part of the, the the joy part of things. Right. If you're looking forward to the performance, you know, it not you're not just terrified about it. It's not the dream where you have where you're suddenly handed uh, a script or a pair of tights and you're asked to walk on stage. I don't know if you've ever had that dream. No. Okay, luckily. I've been I've been handed scripts in my dreams and told <laughs> you're performing. It's like I've never done this play before in my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, the terror that you have. So, so yeah. I guess so, the experience that I'm thinking about more is like when you write a big exam. Mm-hmm. Like I guess you have that like amped up, mm-hmm. like feelings. Like I I know I need to do this, but I think often most people are not excited. It's more of like a stress level thing. Yes. But when you get over it, you're like, whew. Yeah. And it just feels like relief, and it feels good. It's obviously not the same as like. Yeah, because where it starts, it doesn't. So. It's anticipated reward, right? Right. It's where dopamine comes from. And so the sense that a thing is going to be good at the end, like, I mean, when you're getting close to the end of the exam and you go, almost over, almost over, right. then you're That's getting the dopamine. Going. Okay. But before that, you're just basically, you're the hypothalamus, pituitary, and adrenals, they're, they're just firing in this constant loop and they're pumping out all this cortisol. Right. And cortisol, without those other chemicals it's stre- it, that that's the very definition of stress and there's this other thing uh, in your brain when things are going badly uh, it's called uh, it's called corticotropin releasing hormone CRH and or sometimes CRF corticotropin releasing factor and that stuff is bad feeling making okay, okay? so but it will also release a lot of the same chemicals into your body but what's lacking is context is everything, right? So the, 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 the dopamine is lacking. Okay. So um, um, imagine um, well being kissed by the person you love or being kissed by a stranger that you don't want to be kissed by. Right. That, 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 that's a really classic example. It's exactly the same, might be exactly the same 
physiological action on your lips, but the anticipation of being kissed by the person that you love, it produces all these there's social bonding chemicals that are happening in your brain, and there's the anticipation chemicals that are happening in your brain, and the actual pleasure uh, chemicals that are happening in your brain. And But in, in addition to that, there's physiological responses in your body. There's like all these feelings. But when the stranger does it, whom you don't want to kiss you, um, then there's a, a whole bunch of other chemicals mm-hmm. that are being released in the body. Yeah, the physiological action is completely the same uh, in that the lips are touching yours, but what's happening inside of you is completely different, different. Right. right? So it's, it's context is, is so big in all of this because when you're anticipating that cool thing, the, the going riding or going on stage when you're prepared, all of that comes with this tent, this sensation of anticipation and the anticipation of reward. This is going to be awesome. Right. I'm, I'm with. I'm dancing with friends. I'm so excited. I, oh, this show that I've prepared, I've been writing for for so long. It's finally coming to fruition. And whereas the other one, where there is no sense of, you know, uh, anticipation, that's completely different. Then we have the CRH involved. That's a chemical that's in, that's involved in um, in um, depression. Uh, there's a lot of CRH in depression, right. and uh, and it's also associated with um, reduced brain growth and change. Mm-hmm. Uh, so brain plasticity, if we have CRH in our brains, lots of it uh, released frequently. But you always have some. Yeah. But if you have it released frequently, then uh, it will reduce this growth factor in your brain, and so your neurons don't grow as well. Right. Now, if we talk about activism, activism is really fascinating because there's two. There's, so there's two places there's, um, in your brain that are responsible for, um, well, so yeah, you have to determine, is an activist doing it because they think that there's a social advantage for themselves, or are they doing it out of some sense of there is a sacred principle or ideal that I'm defending, right? And... So, I mean, some activists might be going, you know what, uh, I'm looking at the poisoning of my neighborhood by yeah. this this company, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, what's her face? Erin Brockovich, right? right? She, she looked at her, her neighborhood getting uh, poisoned, and she said she needed to stand up because she had to stand up to these people because her family was getting poisoned. Yeah. Her people were being impacted, and she had to do something. And I, like, I, when I think of activism, I think of that always being the case, even if it's like people here trying to protect or help people in a different country, I still feel like there is some way that it relates back to you, that, like, I morally can't live like this, or I need to do something about this just because, like, this is not the world I want to live in. Like, it relates back to you and your values personally. Well, they they did this interesting experiment where they tried to look at the difference between things that we do as uh, uh, a Mm trade-off, which is called a utilitarian view of... of, um, of values, right. and then there's a deontological view, which means that there is a thing that is right, right, and there is a thing that is wrong, and it is simple as that. And um, the, in this experiment, they basically offered to <laughs> they they offered to buy people's souls, kind of, um, not not really, but <laughs> but what they did was they presented them with with choices um, between 
I, I, I'm a dog person. I'm a cat person. I drink Pepsi. I drink Coke. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. Right. Um, I believe in God. I don't believe in God. So these things that were binary pairs that are well known to evoke clear responses in most people one way or another. And if you had to choose between the two. And then they, um, through kind of a, this complicated bidding process, they gave people the opportunity that they would, they weren't really buying their belief, but they were saying, we're going to ask you later on to, to, to sign something. Okay. And saying that you're going to yield your belief if we give you money. And they gave them real money okay. um, in exchange for them saying that they would deny this thing, whatever it is, being a cat dog. A cat person <laughs> being a cat dog or dog cat, <laughs> depending on what you're anyways so and they measured their brains in scanners mm-hmm. and um, there's uh, places in our brain that are um, important for evaluating like the the frontal parts of a brain uh, um, uh, near kind of right towards the very front part of your brain your forehead and those parts of your brain are important for evaluating uh, relative things um, is one thing better than another right. um, um, and using uh, decision making that uh, takes into account a variety of factors okay then there's another part of our brain actually that is based on straight up uh, this is right this is wrong and it's much further back it's kind of behind your ear and um, it's like just at the top part of your ear. Right. It's called the temporal parietal junction. Okay. And it's this place that associates all kinds of um, meanings and aspects of your body together mm. with it. And it's involved in strong definitions of words and ideas. So definitions of ideas, uh, abstract things, are kind of housed there. So is that more so like if you held, because if you held like stereotypes, that's where they would yeah, be? Yeah, actually, because uh, the whole, like a lot of the temporal lobe is involved in categorization. Okay. It's, it's one of its big jobs is to decide, you know... Is, where things go. Yeah, what is that? Is that a truck or is it a car? Is right. it a chair or a coach? Um, maybe it's a chair coach. And, yeah. And, you know, so it, 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 it's responsible for that stuff. But that part back there, the TPJ, temporal parietal junction, it has this particular role and it's been associated with uh, religious belief. Actually, if you take uh, people and you uh, put this strong magnet on the outside of their brain, it's called transcranial magnetic stimulation, t- TMS, uh, you can induce people who don't have a faith uh, life or faith experience, you can induce them to have the sensation that God is watching them or um, or that there is... Uh, um, really? Yes. You just put magnets there. Yeah. And you can also inspire, depending on how you use it, you can also take people who have strong beliefs to make them feel like there isn't a God. For and a it just gives you that sensation. Yeah. Well, huh. but you can also... But you shouldn't read too much into that. Uh, importantly, because we can do the same thing with vision. Right. I, I can put the I can put TMS on a person's uh, visual cortex, and I can make them think that they're seeing things. Right. Right. So I mean, it doesn't mean that there's something to be seen or not be seen, because we have sensors for it. Right. We do have sensors for it, and it's you know it's it's a, so it raises some interesting questions. Some people have 
theorized about a god spot in the brain. I'm not sure that that's it, and there's other people who feel that it's a different And not altogether. to delve into that, but then yeah. I would also bring up the difference between, or if there's a difference for this kind of study, between religion and spirituality. We don't have to go down that rabbit hole, no. but uh, that's a question. Let's, let's avoid that rabbit hole altogether. <laughs> um, but going back to the, the study, so they measured things that people were willing to sell. Okay. These so, beliefs. Yeah, and things that they were not willing to sell right. at all. So if they weren't willing to sell it, it was, it was kind of opt-out. There was an opt-out thing. Then those responses were all back in the TPJ. Okay. If, if they could uh, be sold on it, uh, then those responses were further forward. Uh, okay. And they were in an area, this area that is partly involved in social cognition. Um, so it's partly involved in like evaluating whether or not people like you or don't like you. What is your relationship with that person? And it's also, uh, and also related with um, making decisions. Okay, is this food going to be better than that food? Okay. Is, uh, is this decision, am I going to, could I make more money doing this or that? Right. So it's involved in those different uh, things. And so on things that people were able to be sold on, there was more this evaluative process, so a utilitarian one. But there were some things that people could not be sold on, right? Strong beliefs. So, and the motivation for those things very much comes from uh, some of those areas. You see the generation of that thinking in those particular areas, the TPJ for... Uh, sacred ideas or ideas that you can't be sold on and the area of the more of the um, uh, ventromedial prefrontal cortex for these areas that um, uh, that we can we're evaluating what is the betterness of them. right but interestingly enough there's still this role of dopamine there's still this thing where there's an anticipation it's going to be good, it isn't going to be good. Right. Um, and um, so some of that... Some but I of feel that, like that would apply for the decisions that are being made with the frontal part of the brain more. Because those yes, values yes, and things that rely... Yes, it like, is. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the other part that's involved is something called the, the striatum. Mm-hmm. And the striatum is part of... Um, it's part of our brain that's involved in... Okay, so there's this part of your brain called the basal ganglia. Right. And the basal ganglia, it's, it's job to be a responsible parent. It, it, it looks at all those crazy th- ideas that we have. We say, I should jump off this curb. <laughs> I should touch that person's hair. I should, do, I should say this thing. Right. And it's, its default is always no. Okay. It says no. <laughs> so some people don't have that, or they don't have it as well. Well, they, they have some impulse control, yeah, and that might be associated with their basal ganglia. Or not, um, right. Yeah. Uh, they might have so its default is no right but it will if it gets a well-coordinated ask from all parts of the brain it'll go okay that's reasonable right let it pass yeah that'll go and so the striatum is this area of the brain that has a lot of um it it creates a lot of dopamine and so it's kind of like the permission it's permission central Mm -hmm. it's where the brain goes yeah let's let's do this let's not do this and it movements pass through there and um, um, 
certain thoughts, will, many thoughts will pass through there as well. And so it's related in OCD behavior right. where it just keeps going, yeah, go ahead, think about that thing again, think about that thing again, think about that thing again, think right. about that thing again, think about it three times and think about it three more times, right? So it's, it's giving permission. Right. Um, it's also involved in some of um, uh, psychotic ideation in, in uh, people who have uh, uh, schizophrenia. Right. Now, the, 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 the temporal lobes are really involved in, in schizophrenia too, but the, the basal ganglia, the striatum, also is pass, passing messages that a lot of us, was that a voice? No, it wasn't a voice. We, we, most people would say, no, that wasn't a voice. No, that person wasn't trying to talk to me. No, uh, that thing isn't, that message isn't meant for me. But, and we, we turn off those voices all the time. In our, did I hear something? You're laying in bed at night. Was that, was that someone downstairs? And you go, no, it wasn't anybody. A person with, um, with a psychosis or, or with obsessive compulsive disorder, they, they hear that and they're, they, can't turn off that they don't have they don't turn off that, that. like line of questioning yeah of like was that something yeah they right. just keep asking the question over and over right. again and so um that motivational area is involved in thinking and uh and who knows maybe the ability to even for that ability to say yes to a million different ideas um that's useful for artists which is maybe part of the reason why there's uh such incidents of schizophrenia among artists right? right is maybe the fact that they can say yes to so many ideas permits them they, they don't they don't go through that editorial process that most of us go through and go that's a stupid idea yeah, yeah, yeah. before it ever gets out the gate right they, they'll try it they'll, they'll, they'll see right so the striatum is really important and it does it does all this permission giving and uh, I have no idea where I was going with this. I was I talking know, about I have... motivation. <laughs> I was talking about motivation. But, and, and it's important in motivation. Okay. It's very important in motivation. In fact, it's so important that there's people who have, there's a, a population of patients who have a disease affecting that part of their brains. Uh, and it doesn't make enough dopamine. Okay. And the, there is, the disease is called Parkinson's disease. Right. And so, because they don't make enough dopamine, they never get permission. They don't yeah. get permission to move. They don't get permission to move their limb. And so they, they want permission to move, but they don't get it. However, um, there's a saying among neurologists that you'll never find a Parkinson's ward full of patients in a fire mm -hmm. because there's a high enough motivation for them to go forward. Right. So whether with, with the activism, uh, there's still some passing through, the, through these reward centers. With the arts, there's got to be passing through the rewards system. With adventure, there's passing through the reward system. There's in, in all of it. So motivation, always there's an anticipated payoff somewhere. Right. There's this sense that it is going to be good. Now, if it, even if it's uh, one of these sacred beliefs that you have as an activist, if you say this is uh, water is a right, mm -hmm. and it's not a matter of me valuing that because I'm saying I'm not saying that because I think that people are going to come rob from me later on if I don't say it I'm saying it because I believe with all of my heart that you should not be selling water you should not be selling water it is wrong right I believe that fundamentally and there's nothing on earth that you could ever say or do to make me feel otherwise but if I stand up for that belief by writing a letter 
to someone or my MPP or whatever and making yeah. sure that they do the right thing. I will have my reward centers in my brain will be going, they'll be excited right. when I do that. They will be anticipating reward. And when I've written it, I will feel good about the thing I have done. Mm-hmm. And whether it's adaptive to me as an animal and I, I'm conferred a directed advantage, it makes me more attractive to a mate or whether uh, it promotes survival of my species or of my community, right. it, that doesn't matter. I will, regardless of why I've done it, I will still feel a sense of that makes sense. reward. Okay. So then I have a question, I guess, that for me this related... Um, about, like, how much, like, control we have over what we tell ourselves. Because sometimes I think about your mental strength and things, like, almost, like, related to placebos, but also just, like, your mental strength to be able to say, like, and really, and say it and believe it and say, like, you know what, I'm not going to be sick and and you not being sick. And I'm just saying, is this is this just, like, something that we make up? Is it something that people tell themselves to make everything better? Or is there actually, like, a capacity there to have some kind of mental strength for you to consciously think something that will in turn change. So you're asking me in effect, is the secret for real? For really real? I guess so. If you ask the universe. No, so... (laughs) So... um, So there's, there's several important messages here that should be said from the standpoint of your question. Um, First, uh, we are a fantastic chemical pool of stuff. Uh, Not just our brains, but our whole bodies. The the whole shooting match. And what happens in my body directly impacts my brain, directly impacts my body. There's a recursive loop. And I, I, in many ways, I don't feel like there's a meaningful distinction between our brains and our bodies. I, I think they're kind of, they're continuities one of another. If you look at a picture of the human nervous system that has been separated from everything else, it looks like a tree. It looks like roots that come from the very ground and up through our hands and go right up to the top. It's it's beautiful. And um, it it's, you can see the nerves and, and you know that those nerves are, are talking to cells that are just millimeters away and, and um, it, it's so it's important to understand that, that our body and our brain are a continuous integrated um, inescapably intractably unified thing there, it's not it's not one or the other, or one against the other, or one above the other. They're partners. And the chemicals that are in the body that make it um, digest and move and feel, um, and the things that are in the brain that allow it to think and consider and remember and learn and act, um, or cause the body to act, they depend on each other. So. I cannot stress the importance of that idea enough, first of all. Because that informs everything that you think about placebo-nocebo effects. Right. Really awesome study that was done. I'm not going to tell you about that study. <laughs> Maybe I will. St- I'll tell you about that study because it, it does ex- it, it, it exemplifies something interesting. They uh, gave um, 
they gave people uh, uh, real pills mm-hmm. for back pain okay. and sugar pills for back pain. Right. And they told them that they would have certain benefits and certain side effects. And they told them exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right? They uh, told a, a third and fourth group. And there was a group that they... Uh, gave real acupuncture to and uh, a group that they gave fake acupuncture to. So they made it look like they were putting a needle in their skin, but they didn't. Wow. And they told them exactly the same benefits and side effects. I mean, I've had acupuncture. Well, I guess sometimes I couldn't. Yeah, so if they just kind of press the needle against you, you might think it's going in. Okay, fair. Yeah. And so, so they had real pills, sham pills. They had real acupuncture, sham acupuncture. Everybody was given exactly the same list right. of benefits, and, benefits side and side effects. Okay. So the, the people that had the real acupuncture, they did the best. Right. They, they had the fewest side effects. And, oh, and then they, they interviewed everybody. Okay, you know, what, what benefits do you feel? Uh, what's your level of pain? Uh, what's your overall mood state? What's your overall perspective on life? Blah, blah, blah. And then they said for side effects, uh, did you develop a rash? Did you uh, have additional pain, more joint pain? Did you have pains in other parts of your body? Did you suffer from headaches? All these side effects that they had a list of. So the people who had acupuncture, real acupuncture, they had puncture, they had the the, uh, fewest side effects and the best benefits. The, The people who had the fake acupuncture, Right had more benefits right. and fewer side effects than the people who had the real drugs. Right. So, the power of the brain, well, what is it? What, so we're a chemical soup, and uh, if, you, if your brain thinks that something is happening that's beneficial to your body, it will produce to create cor- correct chemicals for, to, to realize right. m- many of those states. Now. That's the thing, that's like, but having that power to be able, I call it power, I don't know if that's the right word, but that ability for you to be able to tell yourself something that might not be your current reality and and your body chemically making that happen, opposed to somebody like almost tricking you into doing it with like a placebo. So like, um, so I think there are, there there, there are limits, like real limits from, from, from kind of a scientific perspective. I, I can't speak outside yeah. of science, but the, I think from a scientific perspective, there are limits. And the limits are uh, you, where, where you begin and end. So, for example, let's, let's take uh, the classic example, that person made me so angry, mm. which, which I, the, the language is super interesting. Yeah. And it's what, what happened was, so when, when, when we have a stimulus outside of us, uh, we'll have your, you'll have one of the cardinal emotions. You'll, you'll feel a certain way to a stimulus. You see a spider. Some people love spiders. I, I see a spider and I think, huh, spider. And other people <laughs> see a spider and they feel the way that other people feel about clowns, right? right. <laughs> and there's this kind of terror. And Now, so what that is, what that is, is... Those are emotions right there that your body's physiological response 
to a stimulus is an emotion. Right. But then what happens is, and they've measured this and uh, they've looked at this in terms of the timing, uh, then after that, your brain evaluates what happened to your body. Right. And that is a feeling. Okay? So, and, and that's interesting. That's, uh, most people just think that feelings and emotions are the same thing, but they're, they're not. Okay. One is a physiological response to a stimulus, and the other one is your brain's evaluation of what happened. Right. So, so emotion is almost like the, the initial? Yeah. And then the feeling is like... After, yeah. After you, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, when my son was a little guy, he, he would wipe out and he'd fall down. And i go, oh, he fell down. And I didn't give him cues about what he was supposed to feel about falling down. Right. And I would announce that he fell down, but I wouldn't say, oh, that's a terrible yeah, thing. Yeah, or like, are you okay? So, what will happen with a lot of children, and then I'd see what he, how he responded. Sometimes he'd just get up and he'd be on his way. Mm-hmm. And other times, he, <laughs> he hurt himself, and so he'd cry. And, you know, then I would respond appropriately. But um, he's waiting for cues in his environment to tell him how he should feel about that event. Right. So if he's not given yeah. the emotional response. So so let's let's put this more into uh, into a an adventure arts activism context. Sure. Okay. Let's think about uh, for example, um, you're about to do a demonstration, right? And there's part of you that always hates doing demonstrations. You hate going to demonstrations, you just hate it. You hate it, you hate it, you hate it. Or you hate the beginning of a race. Right. You, you, you know you're, you're in the gate and you, you're, you just hate that part of the race. You don't mind. Once you're further along, once you're you know, into it, it's going to be okay. Or you're getting ready to go on stage and you yeah. hate it, you hate it, you hate it. So at that moment, what is happening is you've had a physiological response to the situation. Whatever it is, you're, and your heart races and, and stuff like that. And then you start evaluating your state. You say, I hate it when my heart races. I hate this feeling of my heart racing. Now, when, when I ru- was running marathons regularly, uh, at the very beginning of the race, my heart rate would be so high. Hey, even, even now, even now, if I'm on a trail and, uh, and uh, I, I run where there's wolves and, and coyotes, and if I see a wolf or a coyote on the trail and I look at my heart rate monitor, not a blip. It right. stays steady. Right. If I see another runner 200 meters down the trail, my heart rate just skyrockets. Wow. And it's like, <sighs> yeah. and I just bear down and I got to catch him, right? That's like that I, competitive. I, yeah, I got to catch him. Competitive is. So, but how do I feel about that? How do I assess right. my feelings? What is my evaluation of that moment? Now... Which I feel like might have so many layers, like the way that you see yourself and... Because, I mean, like, so is the... Maybe I'm misunderstanding. Is the feeling com- competition? Like, is well, there a sense it, it, for, for me, it is. Right. For, for me, that, that feeling when I see that other runner, runner is competition. But some people might see that and they might have a sense of fear or dread or failure. A failure, I'm 200 yeah. meters behind right. that person. Which I guess is that where it comes layered in, like, you're... And, and that's, that's my point. That's what we have the power right. to change. And if you remember that, remember how I said very early on in, in our discussion, I said that neurons right at the level, very level of the neuron, each neuron 
is taking in information and deciding what information is going to pass. Mm-hmm. Now, you've heard, you may have heard this term plasticity. Yeah. So what that means is it means a couple of things. There's some. So if you're uh, if you're going um, if you've been wearing a costume for a long time and you're familiar, super familiar with the way that costume feels, you don't even feel it anymore. Mm-hmm. The first time you put on those shoes, they felt weird, but you, your neurons actually adapt to the feeling of something. Okay, they they undergo habituation; they habituate to that thing. Right. Um, if, if you have wind on your it's like arm, like girls with heels or something. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, I, I'm not convinced anybody adapts to that. You have to. No, but but it's it's more like um, if your arm is out the window of a car for right. a long time and you no longer feel the wind blowing on your right. arm. So that's that's uh, a kind of adaptation called habituation. And that's very short term. It'll go away quite quickly. Um, but if you do something to a neuron long enough. The, the nucleus and the will change the nucleus in that neuron mm-hmm. will change the way that neuron responds to the stimulus. Okay. It'll say, well, it looks like we're passing this message a lot. Right. I'll make it easier. And so it'll open up the pathway to send that message even better. Right. Now this could be in, in your body, this could be uh, a message of pain, something you, you feel pain more easily right. in, in your body. Or if you've uh, learn to associate two things together, mm-hmm. um, like certain kinds of. Um, well, I think the the clearest one is certain kinds of touch with pleasure. Right. If you've learned to associate those uh, kinds of things, then those neurons they're firing together the sense of pleasure and that touch. Right. So, in, in your brain, when your brain is this complex collection of all these neurons just working together. And each one votes on its own. Okay. So imagine something like anticipating uh, going on stage and dreading it. Right. And you're just going, oh, this is going to be, ugh. You just do that. Yeah. And then you go to the place of getting on stage. And as you've been doing that, um, as you've been dreading that thing, or in the case of, as I said before, a person making you angry, you say, you know, you kind of say, if, oh, if, they, if they say if they say to me that they like my hair one more time, I'm going to lose it. I, I, you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say, I'm going to say, like my hair. How do you like your hair? And I'm going to, I'm going to spit in it. You know, you know how you rehearse those things yeah, in your yeah. mind? Well, those little rehearsals, you're actually preparing the neurons mm. for, that, for that thing to happen. For that, like, you permanent, are, more permanent pathway. You are literally writing onto those neurons okay. that thing. Right. And associated with that experience or yes. feeling. Okay. Now you do the same thing when you uh, are anticipating being on stage or anticipating anything. And um, I gotta hold there's an idea I gotta hold. Mental rehearsal. If I don't say mental rehearsal okay. then then you gotta mention it to this me. That's why I have a pen. Yes. So the same thing happens if you're getting ready for a race. Then what happens is you have that moment, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, the difference between being really scared yeah. and that anticipatory kind of fear um, and the difference between the dopaminergic system mm-hmm. and, and just the straight CRH, the, the, that corticotropin-releasing hormone, that bad-feeling chemical right. in our brain. 
So if you imagine that you've rehearsed having bad things, then you have, suddenly you have this stimulus. You're going on stage, uh, dancers, places, uh, or, or uh, okay, we're opening up the gallery now, or whatever it is, right. you've got that. Or, or ne- okay, link arms, everybody, here, here they come. Uh, and, don't, and whatever the feelings are that you've told yourself that you will have, you've facilitated those pathways neurologically in your brain. So now the physiological response happens, you have the emotion, and then you evaluate your emotion. At that point, it's very hard to change, to your, change. Evalu- yeah. your evaluation of your emotion. Right. It's like, I, no, I, th- I feel great. I think super aware people, I, I've had these moments of lucidity where I, I, I can sense, I, I just called myself super aware. I don't, I don't mean it like that, mm. but, but no, but really aware people do it all the time. But I've had a few moments in my life of lucidity where I have an emotion and I catch myself, I say, you don't need to be angry about this. I'll just, I'll just, I'll catch myself. And I stop myself. It, you know, it was my initial feeling. Someone cuts me off on the road, uh, which is a really fascinating example. Um, and, and what I haven't, uh, I, okay, sorry. I'm getting a little distracted because there's lots of exciting things to say here. So what I can change is I can change what I rehearse. Right. And mental rehearsal is one of these things that we all have the capacity to do. And Okay, so interjecting. This is what confuses me, though. Because what's the difference, then, between being an aware person, person and being like, uh, like, no, I'm, I'm beautiful, I'm beautiful, I'm beautiful, or no, I'm not angry, I'm not angry. Like, so what, what's the difference between that being like afterwards and you trying to change the end feeling or trying to like have this mental rehearsal of catching it before it happens so once you're feeling an emotion it's really hard to unfeel it Mm -hmm. Uh, once you've gone to the point of feeling and you're evaluating what happened it's really hard at that moment to feel it typically you will be angry you will be scared you will be upset you will be hurt you will be happy whatever the thing is and you'll, you'll go through the normal patterns of that thing. The real power to change any of that is before you get there. Okay. That's, and I think for people who are multi-thousand hour meditators, people who've meditated for 5,000 plus hours, who have this really incredible control of their parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems, I think that they can enter into meditative states very quickly and they can uh, insert themselves uh, through clever use of breath techniques into uh, the decision process around their feelings versus their emotions. Okay. Um, but that's where we have the power to change. It's in this mental rehearsal. What are we rehearsing? What are you rehearsing? Are you rehearsing, I'm a cruel person, I'm an angry person, I'm a, an unkind person? Are you, Or are you rehearsing, I am a kind person, I am a responsive person, I'm a sensitive person, um, I don't need to be angry here. Um, and you know, the a- angry is a really interesting one because I think that I think it forms a part of our identities as artists, activists, and um, adventurers. There's um, the environment that we can't beat. There's the the um, government system that we can't uh, take down. There's the funding that we can't get. Um, there's our feelings about our art and about ourselves. 
that that we're facing. There's the feeling about the world that won't change to meet our needs. So there, there's, so anger is, a, I think, in some ways, a good example for us. There, and um, when we re. Anger is sometimes necessary. Don't get me wrong. I, I think anger is sometimes the right response to um, a, a, an unfair or unjust or evil uh, set of circumstances. But it doesn't serve us all over, overall as an animal. Mm -hmm. uh, anger is not a great uh, thing for us as animals. It's kind of actually bad for us as animals. It, it uh, shortens our life. It reduces our capacity to um, think clearly. Um, it tends to... Um, it increases, it actually causes our, our bodies to metabolize muscle and take things from our bones, take nutrients from our bones. It does, has all kinds of horrible effects on our bodies. It's very bad. So if you sit down and you run through all the scenarios in your head about how, okay, if they come, if they come at me, if they come at me, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to kick them. I'm going to kick them so hard. If they pepper spray me, I'm going to be so mad. And you can rehearse all those things. And those are true and, and sometimes justified responses to a, a situation. Um, but you can also rehearse it very differently. I, if they come at me, I'm going to be calm and collected. I will treat them with dignity and kindness. Um, regardless, I'm going to be above them. I'm going to be better than them. I'm not going to respond the way they do. And if you rehearse that, then that's you are preparing pathways neurologically in your brain you actually the, there's growth of little factors on uh, on on your neurons axonal and your dendrites there's these little bumps that that will grow right. uh, sites that pr are producing new neurotransmitters and that that will actually change and when we rehearse thoughts and actions in our brain it is exactly the same with the exception of um, the primary motor cortex, it is exactly the same as if we actually did them right. when you rehearse it. So if you rehearse being kind, if you rehearse seeing a person be kind to them even in the face of their injustice, if you see a stage and you rehearse embracing it with your heart rather than fearing it, if you rehearse that, that's actually happening and it releases the same chemicals. And yeah, at first the pathways aren't gonna be well established but it kind of begins and ends with you, right? right? The, did a person make you angry? They said something that was really terrible or really bad or insensitive, mm -hmm. but they didn't make you angry. You responded in anger, right. like each of us is accountable. So yeah, yeah, yeah. can, can I change the world? Don't know if I can change the world. Can I make myself beautiful? I can make myself accept who I am. I can make myself not be so angry with the way I look, yeah. Um, but I can't necessarily change other people's evaluation of me. Now, that does have interesting impact in the world around me, mm -hmm. because if I start carrying myself with lower cortisol and higher testosterone, um, I will be evaluated, they've, and they've done studies on this. So, um, looking at our posture, for example. Uh, there's a very famous study that was done where they had uh, people hold a pen in their mouth either with their teeth that yeah. makes them kind of smile or with their lips that doesn't make them smile right and they um, have them judge the funniness of cartoons and the people who judge it held in their teeth like a smile they judge the cartoons as being funnier and they judge themselves as being happier and this research has been um, extended by dr. Amy Cuddy 
and she's looked at um, put, putting people in power postures with their arms raised above their heads before going into a stressful situation, their hands on their hips or curled up like they're looking at a cell phone or with their bodies all hunched over and looked at the level of testosterone in their bodies, which is good for facing uh, stressful situations, right. and the level of cortisol, which is the stress hormone, and you want that to be low. Right, right, right. And for those individuals who uh, who had the pow power postures, their testosterone was higher and their cortisol was lower. So their, their brain, just by using their body, this integration of mind and body together, they actually were able to boost their testosterone. So if you practice going victoriously into a situation... Oh, the, the other thing that they did is they they um, rehearsed uh, in their mind, evaluate like uh, sharing their strongest attributes mm. with the people that they were going to be interviewed by. So if you rehearse those things before going on stage, you're, you're actually... You're literally, literally changing your body chemistry right. as you do that. You're rehearsing that, but you're slowly, bit at a time, changing your brain chemistry and and the transcription of uh, RNA. Like so, not the DNA, not the genetic information that we pass on to our children, but the genetic information that uh, tells our cells how to behave. Right. And so you're actually, you're literally changing that when you do those rehearsals. So it is... That's pretty powerful. It's, it is incredibly powerful. It begins and ends with you, though, yeah. right? Like, it means that um, you might not necessarily change the jerkiness of the stage manager. You might not change uh, the, the anger of the curator. You might not change uh, the you know, the asinine behavior of the cop who's patrolling your um, your protest. You might not change any of those things, but you can change you. You can change you. I will tell you this story because I like this story. And it's a story about me. And the story goes like this. Uh, I, w while I was in the middle of my PhD, I decided to take a, uh, a plastic bag to work every day and I filled it with garbage on my way home. I walk, I live one kilometer from my bus and uh, so I'd get off the bus and I'd walk home and I'd fill my bag with garbage. And I thought, you know, I thought, you know, in just a few short months, it will be clean. <laughs> and, and I was... That's a good plan. I was all dewy-eyed and, and I had this idea about uh, how everything would change, you know. And, um, and it got to be like four months and it was as much garbage and it was five months and eight months and 12 months and 18 months and it was still as much garbage in. and I stood there one day and I looked and I said nothing has changed nothing has changed and as quick as thought a voice came back to me and it said you have changed you've changed Blake and and it was it was this real moment of revelation to me because maybe that maybe sometimes what the goal is in any activism or art or adventuring is not we're not going to change everything but we we have this ultimate local activity that we can do and it's changing us it's making us be better and stronger and more thoughtful in the midst of adversity and the horrible situation that we find ourselves in. That's, I think, 
maybe that's the biggest gift and responding with dignity and kindness in, in the face of horrible circumstances and responding appropriately to inappropriate people mm -hmm. and um, there's a lot to be said for that um, you know I, I think about Nelson Mandela and I, I'm just incredibly inspired by his desire to do things right and we all screw up we all have we don't get everything right but yeah. he really wanted to do it right even though he had been so unfairly treated yeah and he made this real effort to make his government a place where you know he wasn't he was willing to move on and, and move past and yeah he was fully against apartheid but he was also against the kind of bigotry that made apartheid happen and he wasn't going to have it be a part of his own government right and so I think that's what we have power to do yeah can't change everything but we can change some things no but and understanding that I think is really powerful especially like I'm probably the type of person who needs more than a motivational speaker, like needs more than someone being like, oh, you can do it, you know, and I just, <laughs> I wish I wasn't, but I think I am, and so sometimes, even though I don't really understand half of what you're saying, in terms of like, every single word and every single part of my body. You should be asking me, if you don't understand. We're going to be here for, I only have you for a little bit, and I, I get the concepts, like yeah, where I'm sure. getting it, I'm connecting the dots, okay. and so understanding that there is a portion of this process that you can influence that then gives you the results that you want and that can produce like a better yeah a better you or like the the type of person that you want to be and yeah. lead to experiences in life that you want to have yes especially if it's going to interact with well, like you living with yourself every day but then also parts that like interact with your passion or your career or yes, your thing that absolutely. you do like that's just that's a really good thing to know and to yeah. to believe because that's and, it you have to believe in that too mm. in that process and, and for for adventurers too like I mean and I I haven't maybe touched on this as much as is, as is important but what we do in our minds impacts our bodies directly and so if you're the the mental rehearsal that we do um, that prepares a person to do like like a dyno on on a climb, or or to do a really big jump, and they have to get their body positioned right. That mental rehearsal uh, is changing neurons. And an interesting thing about um, exercise programs: the first six weeks of your exercise program, um, your body actually does not undergo any physiological changes. It's not adding new organelles to the muscles. It's not. Um, uh, adding new uh, tissue it's what it's doing is it's refining neurological processes it's making them more efficient faster um, it makes them work without conflict with each other and so when you do the mental rehearsal when you sit down and you think through your move and you say okay it's gonna be like this it's gonna feel like this it's gonna be like this um, then it, it it becomes it becomes like that right and and uh, because all of the all of the neural pathways, pardon me, with the exception of the one that goes out from your motor cortex, all of them fire in your brain. Right. And they they do it. And so and that even I kind of had a question about this, but it was about like 
the things that we kind of like have to do. So I think, because I was talking to someone about that today, even about exercise. And sometimes when you say, like, oh, like I have, like, you know, like I need to go do this. Yes. And it becomes, unless you have a different perspective about it, I think, it can become something that, you know, you just feel like you have to do to stay healthy and it's going to make me feel better. Like, like exercising is going to make me feel better. But if you don't go in with the perspective that you want to do it, sometimes you can leave exercising just like feeling the same. Like you're not getting those rewards. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's enormously complex thing. Like exercise is, is a fascinating example. But you could do the same, like I'm the way that I'm using it is the same thing of like, like almost like cleaning your house, like these things in well, life. Yes, or, or, or prayer or meditation mm-hmm. or, meditation. or um, let's say you're a martial artist, your, your daily practice of martial arts. Um, so all, all of these things, um, and there is, uh, it's a dirty word in our time, but the word is discipline. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a discipline to much of what we do. And for artists in particular, um, Twyla Tharp, um, talks a lot about the idea of discipline, about right. just doing this thing over and over again. That she, she has this idea of cultivating a, a craft. Um, Martha Graham, too, in Blood Memory, she talks about, um, she talks about, you know, there's, there's a disciplined thing that we're going through. Um, uh, Stephen Nachmanovich, too, in, in Free Play, he also talks about this place yeah. of kind of doing things over and over again. And so there's this sense that there's this sense that we do do some things out of discipline and but and we can undermine ourselves in our approach to those things through negative feelings towards them now i would like to celebrate discipline and say that discipline is a a good thing when i was learning taekwondo uh our sensei would have us do between uh 200 and a thousand straight punches every practice. Listen, it's not in a row, I hope. Uh, well, yeah, no, but but it was exhausting. Right. And um, and it was dreadful and horrible, and your arms burned, and you hated it, and it was the most awful thing ever. But I'll tell you what, my straight punch, even today. I mean, I haven't been practicing taekwondo regularly for a long time. I'm old. <laughs> for, for 27 years I haven't been practicing it regularly I, I can I can still break five boards right. really easily yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's not it's not like I'm super good I'm actually really terrible now compared to what I used to be but boy it's it was awful but it's in me so there is something to be said for pressing through even when you don't feel like it and with respect to exercise I have a saying that I say to myself I say uh, I say uh, there's always an excuse to not exercise right? yeah. and, and because I'll get home and I just I don't feel like it or the sky's too sunny or the sky's too gray or this you know this whatever whatever yeah. the reason is and I'll, I'll come up with reason but when I'm getting closer to the moment of exercise like so it's kind of leading up to my lead up can be kind of drab and dreary and I and I say I will myself to get there but I'll kind of go, okay, okay, okay. And I settle into what I'm about to do. And I, I, I go through this process of accepting and embracing the thing that I'm about to do that's a hard thing. And, um, and that acceptance and embrasure, it predisposes me to enjoy 
enjoy it more. Uh, there are some days, though, when a run is just a hard freaking run. Yeah. And I, I, and I, regret, I, I hate being on the trail. Yeah. There's times when it's just a hard workout and you just don't want to do it. But it was, I'll get home from that and I'll say, I'm still glad I ran. Yeah. Because I have just a little bit more endorphins uh, from that. Endorphins are these, um, they're opiates, opioid compounds that live inside of your brain. So basically, it's like your own heroin. Uh, just, just for you, just your heroin, your little heroin right inside your own brain. And um, these endogenous compounds that are pain relief compounds right inside of you. And um, they're great. And so, you know, you get some of that. Yeah. I don't get runners high. And a lot of people say, oh, keep running, you'll get runners high. I've never had runners high. And I've run, you know, I've run uh, for two years. I ran 20 kilometers every Saturday. Right. And it's just like I, I, don't, I don't feel those things. Right. But I still enjoy running. And I yeah. enjoy the benefit of having run. <laughs> I like it sometimes more after I'm done than when I'm doing it. Than during so, it. And I think, I think that may be the same too for an activist, you know. Uh, I think sometimes you know you're walking into a hard situation. But it is, it is important what you tell yourself leading up to it, right? If you approach it with that sense of dread and horror, then mm-hmm. um, you're going to have a hard time experiencing any benefits that come. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, I have a lot of I don't have a lot. I have a couple other questions, but... Lay them on me. Yeah? You want to do one more? Yeah, if you got Okay, ones. cool. I got time. I'm not going anywhere. Um, I still got some cookie left. I was going to say, your coffee is probably super cold. You did that one? Okay, so I had... I'm pretty sure we answered this, but it was... It was basically around improvement. So, like, because I feel like all three of the communities that I talk about, there's people always trying to work on on bettering themselves so whether it's like continuing your training or practicing your artistry or pushing yourself to like climb a new mountain or climb the, the new face or like yeah surf the biggest wave or whatever or if it is like taking on this massive corporation and like your methods to getting around that and like finding something that works we're always trying to like improve ourselves mm-hmm. so I guess but I think well, I would say one thing addition, I yeah. would say one thing about that um value boredom and inactivity as well um there's in in your so when you're learning things whether it be a physical thing or a concept or anything um your brain requires these states called quiescent states where the brain wave activity um synchronizes in a particular band um, so if you were to measure people's brain waves, you'd see that different areas of the brain would be synchronized together. And those periods, they don't come when our brains are busy, when right. we're constantly learning. If you're constantly learning and constantly bettering yourself and constantly learning a new thing and watching this, uh, listening to this cool podcast to this neuroscientist talking about arts and uh, <laughs> activism and adventure... And rather than just taking a few minutes to just kind of sit and stare at the sky, at the storm coming in, um, or to just be quiet in the tub and not listen to anything and just let your mind go. And I think millennials in particular have a tough time with, the, with silence and letting their brains go idle. 
but that idle state is critical for uh, deep reflection and cognition and deep learning. Uh, it, it actually, we need an opportunity for our brains to kind of go slack mm -hmm. in a way, um, to have that down moment so that they can uh, start doing this deep learning. We, we, we go into these quiescent states uh, at certain points in our sleep as well, uh, but uh, we need them when we're awake as, uh, as part of our learning process. So boredom, being bored, um, right. being unoccupied, not bettering yourself for a few minutes of your day, uh, those are all really important things to do. I'm not saying... Does daydreaming you know, count? Day daydreaming is really important. Daydreaming is super important. It's, it's, um, it's on the edge because it goes in and out of quiescent states. It, because sometimes daydreaming is pretty reflective yeah. and or directed. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes you're instructing yourself to daydream about... Um, oh, and then if I get the funding, <laughs> I am so... Oh. I will hire him and her, and then we're going to get that space, yeah. you know, like, so that's pretty directive. Right. And so some daydreaming can be like that, but some daydreaming is much more, um, your brain is just kind of happening along. Okay, what about also another, I'm just using myself as examples for these things. If, I, if I'm doodling or yes. drawing, yeah. I find myself getting really caught up in like the action of the marker or of the paint or whatever. Yeah. And then I, I find I'm not like thinking as much and I feel a little bit more quiet-minded. But yeah. is that the same thing? Because it's, it's similar. Um, it's similar. Um, yeah. Uh, the fact that you're doing a thing is more likely to take you out of the, like, the brainwaves that are that make you doodle mm -hmm. are not likely to allow you into a, a true quiescent state. Right. But so I just need to the, suck it up and meditate. Well, n n not really. You can <laughs> suck it up and just kind of si sit on the porch and do nothing, right? Um, or just kind of watch paint dry or, you know, watch what three-year-olds are superb at, watching an ant and wondering <laughs> what the ant is doing. Like that, that's that's okay too. And then being distracted by that blade of grass. What about people watching? Oh yeah, that's great too. That's a good yeah. one. Now, now again, it depends on how engaged you become. How active right? you are, yeah. So if you're st if you start wondering about their lives or diagnosing them, like I, I mean, I'll look at people and look at their gait patterns, and I'll think, okay, why are they walking like that? What have they right. got? Too much. Yeah, yeah. So or wondering if they're a spy or whatever it is. <laughs> Secret agent. Yeah. yeah. But if you just watch people and you're like, huh. Then yeah, you're, yeah, you're closer to that state. Yeah, yeah. But again, it's it's best. You, you, your brain really needs to be idling. Okay. It just kind of, you know, that kind of place where you're just kind of staring vacantly. Mm -hmm. And we don't give ourselves a lot of permission to do that no. uh, anymore. And some people that I know who are working in different fields, and like when you talk to other people about them, they're like, oh, they're so busy. And yeah, I feel like in a way that's the best compliment. Yeah. Because, you know, you're doing so much and people know about you and you're just like on the go and you have so many projects and you're just like, yeah, yeah I'm getting it done. But yeah, then, we glorify busy, right? Yeah, we, I, yeah, I feel like we do. Yeah, and so it's, um, and I, I, I'm like, I am super busy, but I try, I, I ride on the go bus every day and I try to have idle time there. Mm -hmm. Like I just kind of rather than, uh, you know, like I'll play a Sudoku and maybe do a Scrabble and then I just... 
I put my phone away and I just gaze out the window. And I just look. I look at the scenery going by. Or, see, you know, see the people. Or just, I just let, try to allow my brain just that space to not think about anything. Actually, it's fascinating because that's when I have a lot of my really super favorite thoughts, you know, that are very cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's not something that I think people would expect when you talk about improvement. Yeah. yeah. Chill out. Yeah. But yeah, I guess that's what your brain needs. Yep. Um, motivation we did. Okay, the one thing that you mentioned that when we talked uh, that I was like, I don't know what that is, is when you, you mentioned in passing when you were throwing out ideas that you could talk about the sense of dysphoria that adventurers in particular maybe might feel like this sense of dysphoria when they're not adventuring yeah and I was like I don't know what that word means so okay so (laughs) if you think of euphoria as feeling really great right then um, sometimes when we don't get a thing that we like or that we're excited about or that we enjoy we'll feel sad right and so um, um, we can become very used to certain behaviors. So, um, st- stop a runner from running and watch them get sad. Stop a dancer from dancing, watch them get sad. Stop an adventurer from adventuring, watch them get sad. It's it's you know, and it's and it's not just a, simply a matter of we said oh don't do it. That's that's not it. And it's not just simply a matter of they want to do it, but imagine that your brain chemicals and your brain chemistry, um, if you recall, there's that area that I said was close to the brainstem, the ventral tegmental area. I do recall. (laughs) Well well, well played. And it it squirts out the reward juice, right? right? When it anticipates something happening. Right. So imagine that, and a thing that's important to, to know is that when you become used to an amount of reward, mm-hmm. the level of dopamine that gets squirted out goes down. Right. So, um, so for example, even you know climbing on these huge handholds, and uh, and the first time you did it, and you know you're being delayed by a super helpful person. You're really pulling on the rope and helping up a little bit, but still you got to the top and it's like, this is amazing! I feel so fantastic! And you know, you just kind of had this like absolute rush of, of, of touching the top and then sitting back into your harness. Yeah, yeah. And, but it was the best thing ever. Right. You do that five or six times and you go, ah, I need smaller holes. I yeah, need yeah, a yeah. slightly steeper wall. You know, we gotta, you know, Less we gotta, get, a, gotta yeah. get up to the five. And uh, so you... you and it progressively gets more and more that way. So what happens is for that amount of uh, reward, the amount of dopamine decreases gradually over time. So there's two things involved here. One is this desire for greater and greater risk and greater and greater excitement because you want to match the dopamine reward that you had before. So We're you, all addicts, really. <laughs> in many ways, we are um, the, the difference between uh, most addicts and, and, and uh, like who are addicted to things like, um, uh, you know, more seriously like drugs of abuse or 
um, abusive behaviors in in a relationship, or or serial like you know they they have to have affairs with every woman they see. Um, the things that are that are involved there are frequently a, a lack of community. That's that's often what is the big problem for them, um, more than anything. Um, but with that being said, us, with us all being addicts and wanting a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, there's this uh, cycle for some people. Not all people, mm-hmm. but for some people. So if you uh, if you increase the amount of um, uh, excitement required for a certain dopamine release, then what will happen is after that, for a person who is addicted, uh, and not everybody is, but or even who really likes doing that thing, if they don't get it, then that feel-bad chemical that I talked to you about before, corticotropin-releasing hormone, it will be released into the brain. And it, it, we used to say that it provides a feeling of negative affect. That means it makes us uh, think bad feelings or have okay. bad feelings. But now we talk about general dysphoria Mm -hmm. so dysphoria is a bad like a bad state so your body doesn't feel as responsive you 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 feel sad you like you you don't you your body does not feel as good it's not just your mind it's all of you right it's not even just like your thoughts or your yeah no it's just like your entire being yeah like the 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 systems in your body are not as responsive to pleasure or things like that so you're you're actually not only are you not feeling the good thing that you felt from climbing or uh, doing that really amazing uh, grind on that railing that was just terrifying <laughs> the first time you're not just missing the good feeling of that you're actually have chemicals in your brain and body that are related to feeling bad right and you will feel those until the next time you get a hit of dopamine. Right. Now, for some individuals, that becomes like a cycle of seeking behavior, where they seek the thrill, where they're for, where they 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 might binge on that thing for a while, and then they'll go through a period of uh, of kind of coming down and dysphoria. Right. So. For those individuals, it's kind of it is quite literally an addiction, and that can be to anything. Uh, gamblers, uh, addicted gamblers, mm-hmm. feel that way, where they um, they just keep going. Yeah, they have yeah. that. They they need to have that feeling. And then but when the, they win, they don't walk away. They no, play and because win because, again. because it's not the amount of joy that they're getting from it is not sufficient. Right now, you can play with that because one of the things we know is that unpredictable rewards. Uh, produce big hits of dopamine right and so like so if you have a little reward one time and then an unexpected bigger reward the next time it it will the but it doesn't have to be the biggest reward you'll just get a bigger hit of dopamine yeah so but the dysphoria is very real and it's it's like definitely um, it's this sense of you just yeah you do not feel good about the world so something that makes me think about that then, because something that I think relates to all these fields for me is the sense of it not being, not you're not always being able to like monetize the thing that you want to do. Yeah. And so it's not a regular component of your life. And so 
you know, you're only able to produce a show once every two years, right. or you're only able to plan like a three month excursion to this yeah. part of India to do this thing once every two years yeah. due to like family and a job, yeah. and, or like uh, if you're gonna host like a big conference or a big like political event or whatever. And not to say that you're not doing planning, so yeah. this sense of anticipation could be there for yes. those months of planning exactly. in advance. But and, I and, and and actually to to say something mm-hmm. about that that is. Like the planning is mm-hmm. is a really good build up to it too, and um, and if you want to have meaningful relationships with people over time, then uh, including them in the planning so that yeah. they're part of your anticipatory yeah. uh, responses. You that's have that good community. Too. Yeah. But even but even <laughs> sometimes when I think about it, and you know you put on a show or something, and then. Even if you know you're going to do it again, you're like, yeah. even if it takes me two years, I'm going to do it again. It's going to yeah. happen. But in your mind, you're, that show is done and you're like, yeah. okay, I'll have another one in two years. Like, yeah. there is that... Serious just, post-show letdown, right? Yeah. Or, or, or post-climb letdown or post-jump letdown, Anything, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. So there is... And so... And even the months following, yeah. just like getting your momentum going Yeah. Again. So one of the things that I would say, like, I, I'm not a clinical psychologist, um, so I, I can't you know, comment maybe too much on this, but from just from a neuroscientific perspective, what I can say is it's it's not bad to have low parts, right? Um, that that that's you know, there's parts of your brain chemistry that benefit from not everything being up all the time, right? And um, so having places where you you don't feel great for a few days or you're sad about the loss of something that's that you. That can be part of your process, mm-hmm. and that can be part of your growth as as a person, and it can just be part of your life. And so, it doesn't need to be you know high to high to All high to time. high. And 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 it does allow us to have these balanced things. But so, um, my, my wife and I, we do something. Um, Juliana Cameron, she recommends having artist dates. Right. So we'll we'll tell each other to go on artist dates if we can see that the other is down. Um, I'll say, and an artist date is something you do by yourself. You well, you could do it with someone else. Like you could, you could, like so, um, you could take a friend or someone with you. But it's something that you're really doing deliberately um, to feed that part of you. And so, I don't know. Let's say you're an adrenaline junkie and you've done, you do a lot of climbing. Um, take yourself to Monkey Vault or. Um, or a parkour gym mm-hmm. and just kind of crash into the mats and do something completely different that's not, not your big climb um, and it's not going to cost you a billion dollars but it's going to provide um, there's going to be uh, a thrill from that brand new experience that was unexpected and, and you didn't know what it was going to be like to, to jump into the foam pit off of that uh, <laughs> springboard but you, so you, and you just kind of you say okay I don't care what it's going to look like. I'm going to do this crazy twisting thing. Yeah. And so you just jump off the board and you tuck and you just spin around like a million times and you kind of land. It's not, it's not great, graceful. It's not beautiful. But it was so amazing. It was so fun. You do it again three or four times and do some other things, jump over some blocks, climb up on stuff, fall down. And those unexpected joys of the thing that's a little bit different, mm-hmm. it contributes to your sense of well-being. It's not your main squeeze yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, adventure wise but it is something that provides you with a certain amount of delight and pleasure 
So, you know, look for those opportunities and, you know, maybe it's an adventure date if you're an adventurer. Right. And, and maybe it's an activism date and maybe, you know, maybe you've never, um, you've never sat and talked with a homeless person before. So, uh, you say, okay, I'm going to buy you lunch and you, you know, you're an activist, but you want to, you don't know anything about, you Get really don't, perspective. Yeah. you know, you don't know yeah. anything about the homeless. So do that. Take, buy lunch for a homeless person and sit with them and talk with them find out about their life and why they're on the street and um, just kind of treat them like a human you get an activism kick no it's not a big event it cost you eight bucks for you know whatever you bought them and, yeah, some and, 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 and a couple hours mm-hmm. but it was it'll be huge and yes. it'll be it'll be a, a whole other kind of kick and I so, even like going across boundaries but maybe that's just me yeah. but like yeah. From art from art to activism? Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? That kind of craziness? Just like not always, yeah. Like not being like, oh, I need a break from dance and going to do a yoga class, but really getting away yeah. from it. Like getting yeah. like getting far away and like yeah. just like doing something completely yeah. different. Yeah. Well, and that's exactly it. But if, if your thing is art and yeah. you really want to do an arty thing, then, you know, Has take, some inspiration. Do, do, do something. I, I, I just actually, I, I was saying to my, I, I was standing at Burrito Boys with my, uh, son and his girlfriend and we were looking at all the business cards and uh, we issued a challenge I issued a challenge to them they both like to do uh, designy things and I said okay we're all going to design five business cards for bizarre uh, um, for bizarre businesses and we're going to see who can get the most calls on one business card so are you guys think, designing them or you're not yeah, we're, we're, we're gonna them? De- no we're going to design and print them and put them up can I give you a lead why? Do you want to leave? Why? I just know it's a really great company. No, no, no. It's they're 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 going to be one offs. Like okay, so, we'll okay, do okay. we'll do them on cardstock and cool. and just through a laser printer, and it'll be like fruit fro- fruit fly wrangler, right, right. Or, or or you know. Um, oh, for like the most like yeah, obscure idea. stuff. Got yeah. it. So you know, I, I mean, that's a little outside of my normal. That is cool. Thing. That is outside of it. Yeah. And that is a creative project. Yeah. So, but just. I also wanted your thoughts on, like, this idea of um, dysphoria around something that is, like, your, maybe your main focus in your life versus, I'm trying to compare it to someone who, like, works a consistent job and might not experience, like, do, like, I'm sure they experience dysphoria in some way, but just, like. Yeah, so, so. What's a normal job is kind of a weird idea, first of all. But mm-hmm. let, l- let's take let's take say a project manager or a lawyer, uh, and um, and specifically a trial lawyer, <clears throat> as opposed to say um, a patent lawyer or something like that. So if you have a, a trial lawyer, they're uh, they're preparing for a big case. They're getting all the articles ready. They will have the same kind of dysphoria as an adventure yeah, will. That's true. But a patent lawyer, someone who's just kind of like, okay, and now I'm working on this patent, and now I'm working on this patent, right. it's this kind of grind from day to day. Um, you know, there will be, they, they won't have that same level of dysphoria. Um, a a um, personal tax accountant is kind of, they're at their peak right now, and it's the frenzy, they're in accounting heaven. There's, <laughs> are they actually? I don't know. I don't understand accountants. Come on, they, 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 I, they defy my understanding. No, but I, I'm teasing. But um, uh, so, but after tax season, they'll have a, a letdown too. Right. So there will be that sense. So, 
So I guess, in, yeah, in every way. So when there's periods, when people have periods in their job that are intense mm -hmm. and then have release, then that's one thing. Uh, take a person who works as, as a waitress right. or something like that. Um, if you're a server and you're working all the time and it's just kind of a normal thing, there'll be kind of the up and down of the shift, but you're not going to feel sad at the very end. Um, and I guess my comparison is always doctor. I don't know why. Because yeah. I feel like people that go in to be a doctor, it's like, it takes a lot of years. You put all, like, it's your dream. You put a lot into it. And then you do have, like, depending on what you go into, but you have a fairly, if you get a position somewhere, you get a fairly secure position usually. And it is fairly consistent in terms of what shifts you're working. So that's always my prime example of, yeah. like, yeah. a job that people feel passionate about and yeah. also has the security of having a regular schedule. Yeah, but I, I think that even for a doctor, like... It depends on what kind of practice. If yeah. it's general practice, then yes. But if they're a surgeon, or or, you know, thing, yeah. or or if they're a critical care pediatric surgeon, right. you know, so okay, we got a baby and he's got a deviated, mm -hmm. you know, like blah blah, blah and he's, so you know, and so there's this kind of, uh, and then that letdown period after that, uh, that's always possible, um, and so I think that I think those things are, are it depends. It yeah. all depends on yeah. the way your job works out. Um, you know, um, yeah, how much intensity there is, how, how you feel about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense that it's like applicable yeah. everywhere though. Yeah. It's not a bad thing. Okay. And then the last thing was another thing that you suggested or that you like threw out there was, um, how like the, in um, how interaction with the environment affects us or affects artists and activists and adventurers and I don't know if you just meant that in terms because we kind of almost already brought it up in terms of like a barrier or as a like an unchangeable element of something that is around us and that you have to interact with but that you can't always like manipulate for your so here here's kind of what I meant and uh, I didn't touch on any of this as much as I wanted to uh, I, I kind of when I talk passionately about the interaction of the brain and the body um, that's kind of the start of it. There's this idea in uh, cognitive neuroscience over the past... Um, <laughs> it started back in about 1902, <laughs> but we're only starting to figure this stuff out now from a true neuroscientific perspective. And it's this, uh, and it started with John Dewey, who is the educational reformer, and he had very profound thoughts about this. But the... Uh, there were some neuroscientists around the same time who had thoughts about it too. They expressed it very differently. But the big idea is that your body is not subject to your thinking. It is part of your thinking. And not only your body, but the way your body interacts with, interacts with the world, the environment, and the way your body and brain interact with other thinkers. So let me give you a couple of really clear examples you're you're walking through the woods or you've been running or riding or whatever and you see this stump that's broken off and it looks like a chair there's something about it that looks like a chair and so you sit on it and it and you go and you have this feeling of satisfaction about that you have this feeling like it was um, meant to be and um, actually, I, I have started collecting pictures of bears sitting at picnic tables. 
and I have about 15 pictures now of bears sitting at picture uh, at picnic tables. And bears apparently have the same feeling. They look at something and they go, "I should be sitting here." And they and they and and it's fascinating, right? So there's That's something hilarious. about that thing that when when an animal sees it, that they they say, "This is what I should do with this thing." Okay. And and uh, there was a psychologist. His name was Gibson. And he called these affordances that the environment or the world affords us opportunities to interact with it. You look at this particular patch of grass and you go, I could pretty much put my head right down on that and it would be a pillow. You look at it and it could do that thing. You look at a bump and you go, oh my gosh, if I hit this from this angle on my bike, I would fly. And the environment, the environment tells us how to behave with it. It, it's not passive. It's not sitting there just kind of, oh, I'm the environment. It's, uh, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm alone. No, it, it's saying, you should do this to me. You should see that, that huge wave that's way out there. You should paddle your board way the heck out there, and you should get on that. Right? So the environment actually suggests to us, it tells us what it wants us to do. Now, we also take our thinking and we place it into the environment. So if I'm walking through the woods and I think I'm going to get lost, I might say, I need a marker here. And I know that I have to turn here. I have to turn left. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put three rocks right here. And so you put that little stack of rocks. Now I've taken a part of my thinking and I've put it into the world around me. It's no longer inside my head. It's outside. And I've put it there. I, I put my thinking out there. And another person could come along and they could see my trail or if I put a, 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 a marker on a tree yeah. and they could see that, another traveler would look and they'd go, oh. I go left here. Yeah. Or if you leave a piton in, in, uh, in a climb, so you've, you've left all this equipment there and, and if you look near it and you can see that there's a really good handhold, you're gonna go, okay, I'm gonna clip in there, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, it was left there, or the guy couldn't get his friend out of the, or his cam thing out, out of the, out of the little uh, crack, and and so you say that's where it has to be, and so you'll go there. So someone else has left their thinking about the environment, and in fact, climbs certain climbs like you know what the move is supposed mm -hmm. to be there. You know you you this oh you're supposed to do this here. You got to get your foot over there. That's what has to be. So someone else's, you can see the chalk from their shoe, you, you know, and you know that that's where you're supposed to put your foot. So their thinking is now left on the environment. Right. So the environment is part of our thinking, and it informs our thinking. And our bodies, which interact with the environment, they tell us how to feel about it too. And this is a complex interaction. They've taken um, pictures of hills, gradients, to people and shown them to people uh, after running on a treadmill or not running on a treadmill. And when people who have run on a treadmill are shown the gradients, uh, they will perceive and they ask, what angle is that? Five degrees, 10 degrees, 15 degrees. They always judge them as being steeper after they've run on a treadmill. So why is that? That's they're looking at a picture of a hill, for goodness sake. Right. And isn't the angle of a hill completely uh, objective and not subjective? Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. If I was to put uh, an angle measure on it, but you, yet you judge, 
what effort you would have to interact with this hill differently depending on your internal state. So our, even our feelings get played out on the world. And, our, and, and this is part of this, the importance of our mental rehearsal and the way we view ourselves and the way we think about the world or think about what we're going to say to the world. All, all, all of that stuff gets played out on the, our percept of the world as well. So our internal state impacts the way we perceive the world, which will in turn, you know, for imagine some person who sees, who's tired all the time and they see every hill as being very steep. Can you blame them if they want to plow them all down? Yeah. Right? So let's take that person, give them a vacation somewhere nice. So that <laughs> With they're, no hills. Yeah. And, and then show them the hill later and maybe it'll be something that they want to run more up. more manageable, yeah. Or they want to, yeah, or, or that they want to explore on, mm-hmm. or that they have energy to interact with in a positive way. Right. I, I mean, this is, these things are, are, they're critical, they're so important, the way we interact with the world based on our thinking, and the way we let the world interact with us, it's it's not a small thing. Mm-hmm. It is a big and important thing. And um, we, it's important for us to view ourselves as part of the cognitive environment, that it's not something distinct and separate from us, mm-hmm. that that hill that I'm planning on walking over or running over or jumping over or flying over or uh, protesting on or choreographing on or painting that hill it's part of my thinking it's not distinct from me in many ways it's the way it forms itself in my mind the way I interact with it is part of me Mm -hmm. and we we there's lots of um, experimental evidence that shows us that this is true that the the way we interact with the world is uh, really important but Beyond that, there's the way we interact with other thinkers. And, uh, you know, in a society, you'll have people who are uh, plumbers and who are artists and who are scientists and who are mathematicians. And each person is kind of taking a little piece of the knowledge of that society and they're embracing it. And they're, they're forming their part of that knowledge of that society. And so... Even the way we interact with other thinkers Mm -hmm. becomes part of our cognitive landscape. They've done studies of people who have been couples for a long time, and they parse information very interestingly. Uh, One partner will take care of certain kinds of information, and the other partner will take care of other types of information, even if they have the same professions. So they'll take two doctors, and, and the one doctor will remember all the dates of their friend's anniversaries, and the other doctor will remember... Um, just kind of all these facts about what their kids like, right? You know, so they they just they parcel out the information. They right. they that's really funny. Yeah, well, it's more than funny because it's the basis of community, mm-hmm. and it's how we form together these these communities and societies of interaction that have these incredible, remarkable abilities uh, to do incredibly glorious and incredibly horrible things 
And so if we know that we're part of these communities and we're aware of it and we think of ourselves as sharing common knowledge on a planet where we're thinking in a common environment and that our thinking is dependent on one another, on the environment that we live in and on our very bodies, then I think we will approach our interactions with each other and uh, with our planet very differently and, and hopefully in more healthy ways uh, because we'll realize that we need to take care of the other parts of our brain, even the parts of our brain that don't always agree with us. Mm-hmm. I think the way that you say that probably I think will relate with so many people, but I think in a way that you don't expect. Like when I think about the environment because I came from a really rural area I just know that it's important. Like, I just have this feeling like it's integral. And so now I've been away from there for, like, since December. And I just, I I feel, like, almost like dysphoria. Like, I almost feel like I'm missing something and I just need to reconnect. I need to be more balanced. And so I just understand. And I talk to activists and environmentalists. And a lot of people, a lot of active environmentalists, I think, dislike when people talk about how, like, beautiful and special and magical like the environment is because they want to fight environmentalism or for environmentalism based on these facts of because that's like who they're fighting against and so it's like let's not use like the emotional touchy language of like but it's so beautiful and I love it yeah. but the way that you're saying it yeah. I think is is capturing those feelings, but in a scientific way that it's like, no, it's integral. Yeah. And what I would say beyond that is when I say environment, I, I don't mean... The I don't mean trees. just pretty, pretty, pretty <laughs> trees that, that we've planted. Yeah, I, no. I mean, I, mean, I mean all of it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean all of it. And uh, urban landscapes are, are actually, believe it or not, they're part of nature too because... Yeah. We're, you know, we've entered this era now, geologically called the Anthropocene era, where uh, humans are uh, have caused changes on the face of the earth that they've literally changed the face of the earth. Yeah. And so, what we have done too, that is part of the environment, mm-hmm. for good or for bad, and um, I'm using environment in a kind of psychological kind of scientific standpoint where I'm not saying that it's this it's not trees it's it's everything it's everything we interact with and like the community and the people in it this chair I'm sitting on is is my part of my environment right now and I I mean it in that that way but I I hear what you're saying too and and I, I you know and even when it's not about trees when it is about a certain city or it's about your hometown like I feel like what you're saying like the community essentially is like encapsulating those emotions in in a scientific way and like yeah. the way that it's chemically happening yeah. in your brain for shizzle yeah <laughs> and, but and not just emotions but also the the literal thinking yeah. the, the the way we yeah the way we the cognition we have the 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 ideas we have i have a i have a random thought when you were first talking about um when you're like, oh, I see a tree and I want to sit on it. Or like, that grass is perfect, I can lay my head on it. And when we age and those 
desires don't come up more. They don't. I don't think that we maybe we don't see them, or maybe people just don't like act them out anymore. Because it's like, well, now I'm thirty. I yeah. shouldn't. I shouldn't go lay down on that grass. Or, yeah. So yeah, I think I think what you're. I think the environment still suggests. So I, I love three-year-olds, and I love three-year-olds for several reasons, but. Three-year-olds are like the best scientists ever. Uh, two-year-olds are very good scientists too. Two-year-olds, they, they'll throw stuff on the floor and uh, see how it lands and see how many times they can throw it on the floor before you freak out. But three-year-olds are really amazing because they give full uh, vent to their desires with respect to investigating things. Um, and they will sit on things and lay on things and, and watch things and touch things and taste things. And uh, they're just at this really awesome age where we haven't broken them with what is socially appropriate. Right. But I think that, you know, if for people who have a measure of playfulness or um, can push down the voices that are telling them what is proper like I, I mean you know like if if, if I see uh, I don't know a person at a party who looks like a chair uh, by the way that they're standing or something like that I won't necessarily go up and sit on them right because right? that's socially inappropriate You're like I should sit on that <laughs> <laughs> well you might you might still think it you might think that or, that looks like a very nice place to lay my head and but you don't do that right. because it's inappropriate uh, socially, and we understand that, but you, you might still think it. So I think that even we'll often we'll look at a thing and we'll say that looks like a great handle, or it looks like a great place to lay down, or it looks like a, a thing to lean against, or and and we will will have that thought inside, um, but then we won't respond to it. I, w- I was at a funeral recently, and I was sitting beside this guy who looked like a Viking. He was like maybe six foot eight, big red, full beard, slightly balding. He weighed probably 240, 250 pounds. Huge guy. Right. Huge guy. And someone had a Canada Goose jacket that was uh, leaning over the pew in front of him. And he was looking at the Canada Goose jacket for the longest time. And he reached out his hand slowly and he touched it and then he started petting it. Now, that, whatever it was about that situation, that the fact that it was right in front of him, it broke into his personal space a little bit. It suggested touching to him. He needed comfort and he touched it. And whatever the boundaries were that are normally in place against touching a thing like that he allowed himself to pass those boundaries maybe for that very reason just needing comfort in a hard situation and so I think that those desires to experience affordances uh, they stay with us um, and we just we, we, we push them down for a variety of reasons, but um, playful people and people who are in need of something deep will still take advantage of them. Yeah.
those moments are pretty cool to see. Yeah. Yeah, just the other day, my friend and I were going to donate blood, and there was, like, a handrail down to the next, like, in this you wanted to be slid parking in. lot. Yeah, and there were, like, stairs. We could see the stairs, and we were like, nope, and just, like, jumped over. And it yeah. was, you know, like, those small yeah. things that you're yeah. like, there's yeah. really no reason to do it. Absolutely. We're going to do it. Yeah, no, you got it. Cool. Well, I think that's actually everything. Okay. <laughs> All right. Are you well, all right? A, yeah, it's a good conversation. Okay. Well, Thanks. I wrap up every podcast with getting some recommendations from whoever's joining me and hosting. So I yeah. hope you're ready. So yeah. it's really simple. Yeah. It's just music, book, and one other thing. Oh, okay. So music, book, and one other thing. I Okay, so I'm going to tell you what I, my most recent purchase and what I'm listening to a lot right yeah, now. Yeah, it doesn't have to be your favorite. It has to be uh, yeah, this one. Yeah, so um, uh, the 1975... Uh, the 1975 is the name of the album and mm. the band, oh. the deluxe edition. And uh, it's just, man, got some uh, good crunchy sounds, um, really well produced and uh, unique. I, I can't quite describe it. It's uh, a little outside of, uh, yeah. I, I Do you have a favorite track on the album? Um, huh, uh, it's called Menswear. All right. Okay, so... Menswear men's, by the 1975. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And uh, uh, chocolate is very good as well, but uh, <laughs> menswear is what, what I'm digging on most. Uh, it's It makes me want to write music. So, cool. Yeah, it's so good it makes me want to write music. Um, book. So, a uh, book is... Uh, Do you read fiction? I, I read, yeah, I read a lot of fiction. I, I'm, be, I assume I, you must read so much I, I, for your field. Like, yeah, science-y stuff. Yeah. yeah, I mostly read science-y you stuff. You can recommend that, though, if you no, want. <laughs> You're like, hey, go no, buy this journal. please, <laughs> please don't. Yes, uh, yes. For, uh, so, $12 a month. You yeah, can. <laughs> it'll cost you more than that. But, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, so, I, yeah, no, I, I'm on the board of editors for the Performing Arts Medical Association, so I should probably recommend our journal, but I'm not going to. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> uh, so, I would recommend, uh, book-wise, boy, it depends on how depressed you want to get, um, but uh, there's, there's lots of things that I would recommend. Um, per- perhaps one of the most amazing books that I've ever read, uh, but it is depressing, and I apologize for this in advance, but it's uh, called Every Man Dies Alone by Hans Falada. And uh, about it. Yeah, so he, um, he wrote this, uh, what, basically what was it like for uh, the average German person during the Second World War who did not agree with Hitler, and um, what they went through. Mm-hmm. He, he wrote this while he was in an insane asylum, in code, uh, between the lines of another book, um, so and um, and committed suicide immediately after writing it, and uh, so it's it's not um, a happy book, but it's one of the most ingeniously written books I've ever read. Yeah, and uh, it's, so it's very good. And if you want something uh, funnier, then read uh, the Gone Away World by Nick Harkaway. Uh, it's surreal. And bizarre science fiction, but it's cool. it's very funny. Something oh. for everyone. And and what was the other thing? One other One thing. One other thing. One other thing. Could be literally anything. Could be like your favorite pair of runners or. Wow. Your favorite yeah. bus driver. It could be anything you want. Um. Huh. 
Because <laughs> it doesn't have to be a product either. Yeah, no, like, no, no. This place I went to. Yeah, no, I, I know. I'm just kind of thinking there's of all... There's a lot of stuff. Yeah, because there's, there's things that I... I really recommend um, kindness. Kindness. Mm. N- not niceness, kindness. And um, they're two very different things, and they get mistaken for each other. Uh, I, I, I was no- getting shit for not being nice all yeah, the time. Yeah, I, I am not a nice person, yeah. but I would like to imagine that I'm kind, and, and on... On good days, I am. Um, so kindness is about um, showing concern and consideration for people. Um, it doesn't mean that you're always, you know, you're not squeaky happy and shiny, but you are. You make sure that you're looking out for people, and things as simple as. A complimenting people, um, telling them that they're valuable to you, frequently will get to that point, and we'll, there will be something inside of us that will tell us to not to not do it. Um, saying thank you whenever you can, uh, holding doors, um, you know, looking for opportunities to um, not say something cruel, not not having the cutting comment. Um, yeah, kindness. I recommend it. It's awesome. Cool. I like that. Yeah. Cool. I am going to make a really big attempt to find menswear and yeah. play it for the end of this podcast. So oh, hopefully everybody awesome. will be able to listen to it. Awesome. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Cool.
Can you?